Hi, and welcome to SpondyCast, where we bring together the best medical minds, thought leaders, scientists, patients, and caregivers to inform and inspire the spondylitis community. I'm your host, Jill Miller, living my best spa life, knowing that how we meet today has the power to change everything going forward. Liz Maines, thank you for being here. Thank you for inviting me. I'm excited. Yeah, we're going to talk a little bit today about mental health and spondyloarthritis. I, and I think it's wonderful to have some lived experience from your side. Uh, I, I too have that uh, lived experience. <laughs> and uh, one of the reasons I'm so excited about you being here is because I feel like when shifting toward mental health as a focus, I think the outcomes, I have no scientific knowledge, but I, I, I wonder if you do. Uh, I think the outcomes improve for patients. It can be a very long road to diagnosis and so many people are just exhausted and depressed before hitting the diagnosis. And then you get hit by the diagnosis truck. Uh, this can be really difficult to pull out of. So as someone is going through this journey, how can people work through that transition of a long road to diagnosis and then pulling out? Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, the research has indicated that people with spondyloarthritis have higher rates of um, depression, anxiety. Um, and I think that's true for most people that are struggling with a chronic health issue. Um, and so, you know, it, it, there, there's a interconnectedness there. So you have physical problems which are depressing you and making you struggle and, and feeling like you're not going to be able to handle this. But then you also have the physiological stuff that contributes to having higher rates of depression. Um, and then also, uh, you know, a lot of the research shows too that people who have chronic illness also sometimes have higher rates of childhood trauma, um, have also um, really struggled with physiological problems throughout most of their life. So um, putting all of those things together again increases the rates uh, we also know that people who struggle with chronic pain and chronic illness also have higher rates of suicide. Um, and we don't often talk about that because nobody wants to bring it up and, you know, talk about those hard things, but it, it's true. We're all at higher risk. On that note, is there psychologically like a self-shaming around having a chronic disease? So, um, you know, it's kind of a loaded question, right? So let's start with the diagnosis with spondyloarthritis. Most people are diagnosed before they're in their 40s, um, especially with ankylosing spondylitis. So here you have a person who is in the prime of their life, looking towards the future, just starting a career, maybe even thinking about having a family and then getting this serious diagnosis. So um, what does the future hold for me? What does that look like? What does it mean for me not to have the physicality that I thought I was gonna have? Um, the abilities, 
that I thought I was going to have. So it really does kind of stop people in their tracks. And um, in, in my mind, it creates a grieving process. And so the point is, I think that, um, you know, all of us grieve in some form when we get a serious diagnosis. Um, again, because I think as human beings, it's just totally changed our our idea of who we are and our trajectory in life. And, and so we have to stop and kind of take the information in. And when we take that information in, often there's a process of denial and anger, guilt. Did I somehow do this to myself? So it's a process of moving through that. Um, and sometimes we move through it and several times it's not just linear it's circular in my mind so imagine that again being that young person and someone telling you hey the reason you're having a hard time getting out of bed and and getting up to go to college um is that you have this disease and um by the way um you're gonna have to probably think about changing your life a little bit and looking at serious medications and so on and so forth and in that process and i i know you talk a lot in some of the information i've read on you you talk a lot about there's grief and there's depression and they're two separate things and sometimes we don't know right as yes. an individual until we're on the other side i can now go back and point to what parts of my journey where i was probably put myself in clinically depressed and where i worked through the grief process and ultimately one day came out the other side <laughs> Well, you know, and I have to say, if there's a lot of confusion around that, I would say that it's good to reach out to a mental health professional that can help you um, navigate through the grief in the grief process. And if it looks as though it's more than grief and that this person has struggled with depression or anxiety in the past, it's likely exacerbated by the crisis. So um, you, someone could um, just be completely fine. They get the diagnosis and, and they move through the grief. And it's not necessarily that um, heavy. Whereas someone who's previously had depression and anxiety, it just really drops them into a major depressive episode. And again, if you're concerned about it and you feel like you just can't get out of it, it's important to reach out to a mental health professional and have them help you figure it out rather than you staying sad or depressed or suicidal or whatever, or anxious or whatever those feelings are that you're having that feel like they're just long lasting and really um, changing um, your ability to get out of bed or go to work or reach out and take care of yourself um, and see your doctor. If it's impeding on those things that relate to your activities of daily life, that's pretty serious and you need to reach out. Are there some general guidelines on the differences between depression and grief that people? Um, yeah, um, generally, 
they are um, time periods and the feelings around it. So um, grief is a normal human process. Um, we grieve the loss of a pet. We grieve our parents. We grieve um, a child, the loss of a child. Um, and so it really is okay to feel sad and feel like you really don't want to be around people. But if it lasts for a really long time and you find yourself really withdrawing more and more and more over time and just feeling completely hopeless, um, that's the time to reach out. I mean, I would give you some real specific times, but there's, a, if you look at the DSM, the criteria and the overlap of diagnoses, um, it gets a little bit complicated. But what I would say is if you really feel like after, you know, a few weeks, a um, couple months that, you know, you're getting worse and you're just avoiding everyone and just not getting out of bed and not taking care of yourself and not eating or sleeping too much or not sleeping enough, that's when we're looking at more serious um, clinical a more serious clinical picture and you might really need to reach out. Okay. Uh, when someone is new di newly diagnosed, do you have any uh, tips, tricks that you would give to that person from a mental health perspective? Talk, 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 reach out, um, talk to people. If you're not ready to talk to your family about it, um, talk to, people at a support group, talk to somebody at an agency, talk to your doctor, make sure you have a good medical team around you, a good rheumatologist, a good primary care doctor that you can really reach out and talk to them about symptoms or how you're feeling. Um, but you really need a support system. This diagnosis is something um, that really does change your life initially. Um, and it takes some adjustment, just like any chronic illness, really. It takes adjustment. You have to find what works for you. You have to know um, what medications are going to work for you. And sometimes it's hit and miss, and that can be really depressing. So it's good to have a support system, people that you can rely on and talk about it. Yeah, I, I can recall years ago when I was coming through uh, and just really starting to talk about it with people. And I remember seeing a friend who was a physician and I said, she said, you're, you, you've got so much more to say than I've listened, than I've heard you say, because I really wasn't well the couple years leading up to that. And she said, well, you know why? Because your tongue is an extension of your spine. Oh. And, if, and if you're talking, you're probably relieving a lot of what's going on in your spine. Interesting. I've never... I, I was, cool. I was super fascinated, but I, I, you know, sometimes I like to talk. So sometimes when I talk too much, I just say, well, I'm making my spine feel better. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah. I've not heard that. That's wonderful. I've never looked it up from an embryonic perspective, but I'm, I'm assuming we could find that out. Uh, so as the diagnosis hits uh, and you begin to talk about it, there's a lot of care that goes along with that. Does self-care help us? And we all have various forms of self-care, uh, but does self-care help with coping through the 
the acceptance and the stages of grief or understanding what this means for us from a diagnosis perspective? It, you know, it really does. Um, but it's hard to think about self-care sometimes when you're feeling that overwhelmed and, and lost and um, hopeless and in that stage. But it's really critical to begin the steps of self-care. So what are the things that we do know that work for people with chronic illness and people with um, mental health issues? These are really standards of care that really help people come out of um, a lot of the, the things that we've just discussed. So wellness, we know, are five things that really, really have um, been shown uh, statistically, um, research-wise, that really do help people feel better. First one we already talked about, which is support. You need a support group. You need some people or person that you can really rely on. And, you know, what the research shows is reaching out every day and talking to several people in that day. Don't isolate. The next thing that um, is really challenging for us with spondyloarthritis is getting good sleep. That is such a part of the symptoms that just wear us down or the symptom that wears us down is not getting good sleep because we're in pain. So finding ways to get rest and good sleep. And, you know, for some people that may be that it's time to get a sleep study and get a CPAP because your neck is too fused and you're not getting enough, you know, oxygen or air. Um, it may just be um, talking to your doctor about a sleep aid or something for a while. But the point is we need good sleep because that's where we heal and that we rejuvenate. Um, the other thing is eating well. Um, you know, good nutrition is, is critical. It keeps our blood sugar stable. It keeps us energized and you know, you don't have to do anything fancy. You know, you can just do the Mediterranean diet, which is is probably the most um, mentioned diet that there is. And it's not even a diet. It's just eating foods that are good for you. Um, and then the other thing is, is physical activity. And that's the other thing that's really hard for us, right, is to move. Because if you move too much, then you hurt. If you don't move enough, you hurt. So it's kind of like Goldilocks, right? We got to find the right um, area that works for us. And some days it's moving a lot. Some days it's not moving. So we have to listen to our body. We have to tune in and not run everything with just our head. We really need to scan our body. And one of the other things that's really helpful is mindfulness. So that's kind of a body scan too, right? Um, so that we spend a little bit of time relaxing, breathing, and doing mindfulness. So um, these are things we all know, again, that are important for us to feel better. And I have to say, give yourself a break, too. You can't jump in and just do a whole program. At least I don't know very many people that are like, yeah, I'm doing all this and I'm just perfect now. It really is an adjustment. Do a little bit here, do a little bit there. And then hopefully with time you have a routine. Yeah. And did I see somewhere that one of those five is also gratitude? That I threw in. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> and I'm sure. Yeah, I you know I have to say I'm sure 
Um, so I think that what happens is we spend a great deal of intrapsychic energy on feeling sorry for ourselves. And it's okay to feel that for a certain amount of time, but it's even more essential that we find something that we're grateful for, for the day. You yeah. Know, and I, go and ahead. I think in general, I think the gratitude piece uh, is really important for a lot of people. We forget when we get inside ourselves. So I don't know if that's, and I know uh, Lori Santos, I don't know if you follow her. She does the science of well-being class at Yale. Uh, gratitude is one of the, it's, there's an entire week, I think, dedicated to gratitude. Uh, it's a wonderful class, but yeah, I think it, it makes a difference. So I'm glad you threw it in. <laughs> yeah. And, and there, there, I'm not saying I made that up, but I'm just saying I added that in for us as people with spondyloarthritis or chronic illness, because I think we get so woe is me and bogged down by our condition that we have to find some things that we're grateful for every day. You know, it may just be that, you know, today I'm grateful because the sun's out. It may be I'm grateful that my children are healthy and happy. It may be that I'm grateful for my spouse um, who's always been there. Um, you know, or I have a job that um, accommodates me, which I'm always grateful for every day. My job is very accommodating. Um, That's so, yeah. So is there, uh, in terms of if someone wants to look and reach out for a mental health professional, uh, is there something that they should be looking for or how would they find someone with the right approach for them, uh, particularly related to chronic illness? So this is a challenge, um, mostly because and there are so many areas of the country that are underserved and yeah. it's hard to find mental health professionals that are qualified um, to even um, work with people with chronic or terminal health issues, but let me give you just a couple of tips. Um, first off, make sure the provider is licensed in your state. Doesn't matter if they're a marriage and family counselor, a licensed professional counselor, a psychologist. There are some people who call themselves counselors or psychologists um, or life coaches, and they're not qualified to deal with mental health issues. Um, and then um, the other thing is, is you can look and Google health psychologist or therapist who specializes in health issues. You can also ask um, your rheumatologist or your physician if there are people in the area that they've referred to um, that have some experience in those areas. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, there are very few people that are probably an expert in ankylosing spondylitis, but they work with people with chronic health issues. And so they can, they have the training and the expertise and understand what that means to get that diagnosis. Uh, you can look up actual uh, licensing boards uh, in your area. So for instance, in New Mexico, I could look up the, uh, the board of uh, psychologists, examiners. Um, I can look up uh, the, you know, license and 
family therapists and you can type in chronic health and depression and it'll come up psychology today also yep. has a big, but again, just be careful and make sure people are licensed in, in your state. Yeah. There is telehealth. Telehealth has been a really good thing. Um, but if you're a person who needs to see someone in person, it can be challenging at first. But that's also a great way to find a provider that may have that expertise where you may not find them in your state. And but again, you want to be sure uh, maybe your insurance refers you to that person or your EAP for your job employee assistance program can refer you. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And two follow up questions there, which I think are really interesting. One you touched on, which is uh, the large percentage of the population that is underserved. So if someone is underinsured, uninsured, uh, can't pick up the co-pays, are there any resources they can access? Absolutely, always, yeah. Um, it's a little challenging to find them when you're not you know, like working in the system, so sure. to speak. Um, but I would reach out to your state um, mental health, uh, health and human services department, and then the mental health part of that. And I would talk to someone there, um, a social worker or an intake person and say, look, you know, I'm really stuck and I don't know how to find someone. I really need to talk to someone. There are also nonprofits, um, for instance, um, where I went to school, my school, we had a counseling center and it was based on a sliding scale. So um, anyone could come in um, even all the way to free. So many colleges and universities have people who are working on their licensure um, and they're supervised by someone who's licensed and can see you. The other thing is long-term aging um, and disability. Each state has that department and they have social workers and they could talk to you and help you navigate uh, the system. Um, but it is, it's challenging, um, especially in a state like New Mexico, we have what's called rural and frontier areas where people, again, there, is, there isn't anything for hundreds right. of miles, but telehealth has helped with that. I'm sure it has, that's fascinating. So if someone, uh, sometimes seeking out help around mental health can be scary. Uh, and I think of it's a, there's fear associated with walking in and what do I say? What do I, how do I act? What does this therapist want to hear from me? Uh, do you have any tricks for getting over maybe the anxiety just related to walking through the door or picking up the phone and making the appointment? It is scary. Um, a lot of times people are taught not to talk about themselves or what's going on with themselves. And there are a lot of times there are family rules about sharing information with a stranger. Um, I can. Yeah. So there's all kinds of dynamics that can come out for people when they think about talking to someone about their innermost feelings or thoughts or something negative about their spouse, their spouse isn't supportive or whatever. I can assure you that everything you talk about is confidential with the therapist, unless, you know, there's a threat to someone else or, 
or you in some way that's a serious threat. But the, the therapist will talk to you about that. 99% of the time, um, it's just getting through that front door and letting the therapist do their work. You don't have to do it all. You don't have to have the answers when you go in. That's why you're seeing the person. Just be willing to walk through the door. And then the last thing I always want to tell people is if you don't feel it and you don't feel like you're clicking with that person, leave and find someone else. Because this is the most, um, I would say, most intimate relationship you can have with a professional because you're really talking about deep feelings. And so if you don't trust that person, you don't like them, you don't feel like it's working, you need to move on. Don't quit therapy or say, see, I knew it would never work and they were weird and blah, 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 blah. You know, it just leave and go to someone else. I mean, if you didn't like a physician and you didn't like what they were saying to you, you would get another physician. It's the same with a mental health professional. You've got to have a good relationship with them. Sure. And I think, you know, I think a little bit about that anxiety is the same as when you've never taken a yoga class before. You have similar <laughs> anxiety and you go. Or when you've never been on the in the section of the gym where they're lifting weights. And once you go and find something that works for you, you generally make progress, right? Well, everything new is, is normal to provoke some anxiety and that's a normal feeling. So you're not weird or odd, um, you know, by having those feelings, it takes a little while to trust someone. Yeah, for sure. But it's, I think it's worthwhile when you're absolutely. And I'm not just saying that because I'm a psychologist, it really is worthwhile. I would agree. Uh, I'm not a psychologist. Where do I play one on TV? Uh, or on or on a podcast? Uh, so I think uh, we are nearly out of time, but I do have uh, one final question, and maybe this is a whole follow-up episode, uh, because I think one of the things as we get through the diagnosis and we get through accepting it and working toward this unconditional self-acceptance around the disease. But then we were sailing along and we hit these flares and managing those from a mental health perspective to not allow yourself to get into this circular chronic flare situation, at mm -hmm. least from a mental health perspective, is really can really be a challenge when you just things seem to pile up. So is there any best practices for managing ups and downs related to flares? Oh my gosh. Flares are the scourge of spinal <laughs> arthritis, right? You know, the number one thing that um, physicians say um, is to keep your stress level down. Ha ha. How are you going to do that when you have kids and you work and whatever, or relationship problems, but it really is important to keep that in mind. Don't add any more stress. Don't take on any more responsibility. Um, slow down, um, listen to your body and, and take the break. And it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be a permanent thing, but take the time out to deal with the flare and it will get better. 
Um, but you have to, have to, have to stop. I mean, I know people in med school that, you know, get flares and they're like, I just don't know what I'm going to do. Well, you can't go to class, you know, but you've got to deal with your body. Um, so um, that's my number one uh, recommendation. The other thing I want to say is that this isn't a linear process. This isn't a linear disease. You have life changes. Maybe you decide you want to have kids um, and you have to get off your biologics, you know, so it's going to be rough at times, you know, as you maturate and go through different developmental phases of your life, there are going to be things that are thrown at you and just know that that's normal and that's going to happen, but you can push through and it will get better. And that's the gratitude, right? is spending some time with the gratitude. Yeah, for sure. No, this has been very enlightening. I'm so grateful that you took the time for this. And uh, the work you do is amazing. I'm sure you have contributed positively to many, many people's lives on this oh, topic. Thank you. So thank you for taking the time. And uh, yeah, we're thrilled to have had the opportunity to spend some time with you. Uh, and I'll just, I'll land it with, where do you see hope for people with ankylosing spondylitis? Whew, that's a hard one. Um, I think, where do I see hope? I see hope within people. I think the hope has to come from inside. And people have to find things to give them hope. It's not an external thing. It's an internal thing. And that's been one of the hardest things for me as a person living with ankylosing spondylitis is to find the hope within myself and where, you know, what gives me hope, what helps me look forward to the future rather than looking for a solution outside of myself. That is very sage advice. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Jill. <laughs> It is very good advice. Uh, yes. There are many times and had to remind myself. So thank you, thank you for sharing that. All right. Uh, I think we'll wrap it on that. SpondyCast was made possible by donations from the Spondylitis Association of America's individual members. Since our founding in 1983, the Spondylitis Association of America has been the face, voice, and leading nationwide nonprofit educating, empowering, and advocating for people living with spondyloarthritis. Through our extensive work with patients, the medical community, and partners, we provide information and resources to help people impacted by the disease live better lives and champion research to find a cure.